So this is new. Today, we are doing questions and answers about mental health. And what's weird is that it's just me. It's me and me. So hi, Ben. Welcome to your podcast. At any rate, so how this works is that y'all can email me at benjaminrusick at gmail.com. That's B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N-R-U-S-S-A-C-K at gmail.com with any question you want about mental health, and I will answer it. Now, I've also done a terrible thing and set up a Patreon account. I've joined those ranks, ladies and gentlemen, which is fine. And um, for a meager subscription or a singular donation, you too can have your question read and answered on the air. I guess they don't say on the air anymore because really you're not on the air. You're just recording stuff in your living room. Regardless, please check out the link to my Patreon in the program notes. And as always, my name is Benjamin Russick, licensed marriage and family therapist. And this is my podcast. Look, just tell me what to do. So we're just going to start. And I'm going to start with a question from my good friend, Felix. He says, how important is the emotional development of a therapist? Can they be a wreck and still do great work? Or is that even an asset, a way of connecting with brokenness in a tangible way? Well, Seymour, my old therapist, he said that most therapists are on the wrong side of the desk anyway. And that's probably why I do not have a desk in my office. But let's get into some more specifics. So Carl Jung said that the psyche can't really expand beyond its own boundaries of its own consciousness. So you can't really know more than you can know. Similarly, a patient can't know more than the therapist knows in a way. That is, whatever the therapist hasn't worked on in himself or herself, the patient is not going to be able to get that straight. So let me just give you an example. So on a really basic level, you can kind of begin with table manners. So if parents don't have good table manners, the children aren't going to have good table manners because the children aren't going to even know that table manners are a thing, right? So it's not like they sort of inherit this, you know, dislike of table manners. It's just like their their brains never really went there in the first place. You can expand that out. You can say, well, what about a therapist who is a terrible prude? How could they possibly help a patient with their own prudishness or their own sexual issues? And there's also the question of this thing called countertransference. Countertransference means that the transference of the therapist, the projection of the therapist might have on the patient. So let's say you happen to remind your therapist of their father or mother. Um, and let's say that therapist does not like their mother very much, or their father very much. They might have a hard time just working with you and they might get angry at you and be blocked on how to help you. That's another pretty simple example. And those kinds of projections can come off from all over the place. At any rate, all those things I mentioned, the table manners, the prudishness, you know, countertransference, that's all shadow stuff. That's all stuff that's within the therapist's personality that really hasn't been worked out yet, that the therapist is still futzing with. You know, Carl Jung, he, he basically believed that the therapist's unresolved psychological issues and unacknowledged shadow aspects would really interfere with their ability to work with patients. He believed that therapists really have to confront and work through their own own stuff in order to be effective. For that reason, you know, my hope is that most therapists do seek their own growth and development. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean they see a therapist themselves, but that they read all the books, that they, you know, go on all those fabulous retreats I see them talking about on Instagram all the time. Like, here's me doing yoga at sunrise. And and um, yes, they're very uh, holistic and, and great. And I wish the best for them. Um, the second part of that question I want to talk about the wounded healer. So, and this is addressing the question about, you know, if the therapist is a wreck, (laughs) you know. So in Greek mythology, the centaur, that's a beast that was half man and half horse, 
this particular centaur named Chiron was a great healer and teacher. And he was known as the wounded healer because he'd suffered this painful wound that he himself could not heal. But in investigating his own wound and dealing with his own pain and suffering, he learned how to help and heal others and become a mentor to many people. In a lot of other cultures, there's you know ideas of the healer is, is usually someone who's suffered. There's one where you, you become a shaman, you have this dream that you're being ripped apart by animals. I don't know if that applies, but I, somehow I feel it does, like that you have to be torn to pieces um, and then put back together again in order to be whole. So there's also this aspect of being hurt and fractured and then healing. And then it's like you become more whole from having healed. Uh, what's that Japanese thing? Therapists love talking about this one where you break a pot and then you line all the cracks with gold and then put the pot back together again. And you know, it's it's a really popular metaphor and I can't stand it for that reason, but it's actually pretty good. <laughs> the term is kintsugi, uh, golden joinery, also known as Oh, I can't pronounce that. Anyway, it's the idea is is that when it's repaired, the object when broken and repaired is actually more beautiful and more whole and more full than it was uh, beforehand. Nice metaphor, eh? I would also say that you know I definitely feel as though you know my own struggles have helped me as a therapist for sure. Uh, being a fat guy with no social skills and being a social outcast. For that reason, I work, I especially work, enjoy working with teenagers who are having difficulty, you know, matriculating into their peer group. You know, I have to watch my own countertransferences. If I have a teenager in my practice who say is getting picked on, um, I might get really furious for the patient. And that will, even though I'm being their advocate, it still clouds my judgment. So it's it's a double thing. It's not so clear, right? Just because I I have work in that area doesn't necessarily mean I'm I have clarity on it all the time. And this is a callback to that earlier piece on countertransference, just to tie it all together. Uh, another question from my friend Dan. He says, "How has?" my work changed my view on marriage. Well, one thing I've noticed is that every single patient I've had at some point or another expresses their, you know, I wish I had this relationship or I wish I had that relationship. There's always something wrong with their relationship. And the more mature ones are like, yeah, this is sort of, you know, I know this, this is the way that this goes. And the young, the younger folks are more like, oh my God, I can do so much better for myself and I deserve so much better. And I deserve so much better. Marriage is much more practical than I realized. And my old therapist, Seymour, gave me a really cynical analogy, which was the factory. And <laughs> he says, you know, you've got the room, the bedroom where the children are made and produced. And then you've got the room down the hall where the food is made for the children that are produced. And then you've got the bathroom where you can see where he's going with that. And then he says, you also have someone you can have sex with on a regular basis. It's very cynical, but he's not wrong. Um, I think that... <sighs> I think that our expectations around relationships are just way too high. I think we feel like the rose petals should be thrown on the ground before our feet and we should just be able to have the best relationship in the world, the most ideal love possible. I think that there's an aspect of just quiet friendship that you need to learn to, well, settle with, really. You know, an old guy once told me that relationships are all about what you're willing to tolerate in another person. And I think this also applies to friendships too. <laughs> you know, is the worst aspect, the darkest aspects of your partner, something you're willing to tolerate. You know, one of my good friends, he becomes, you know, wildly intoxicated and misbehaves. Now I would say that's his, his worst quality, but he is a lovely human being. And for some reason that doesn't bother me. So I'm willing to tolerate it. Others don't like I've got, you know, other friends that don't want to hang out with him. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. <laughs> You know, the other thing I've realized is how rife projection is in relationships. So in the beginning of your relationship, when people are in their honeymoon phase, they're really projecting their own best qualities onto their partner. So it's like they're looking in a mirror 
and that's why they fall in love. Robert Johnson, he said that falling in love is the only spiritual experience that the Western people have anymore. You know, we don't have church, we don't have initiation rituals, but we have falling in love. And the idea is, is that inwardly we're fractured and a deep spiritual experience is all about connecting ourselves to ourselves, connecting your ego to your unconscious and feeling whole. When you fall in love with somebody and you see a positive aspect of yourself, you're able to connect with that aspect of you that you've disabused. Let's say you're a very kind person and you're a very, or you're a very generous person, or you're funny or enthusiastic, whatever it is. And you're not able to, you're not really able to own that about yourself. And it's almost like people feel whole when they're in love because they're connecting something that they've been disconnected from. The, the idea is that when, when you're falling in love, you're kind of falling in love with yourself. And when that image of yourself is ev- evaporates from your partner, at least mostly, it's pretty startling because suddenly instead of, you know, your golden aspect, you have yourself a actual human being um, to negotiate with. And uh, another way of conceptualizing this is that think about the people that you admire most in the world and just list the aspects about them that you admire. And you will, you will invariably see parts of yourself. Try this. You will invariably see parts of yourself that you admire, that you weren't able to own. I have people do it all the time. You know, they'll say, oh, this person's very strong, or this person's very poetic, or this person's very funny. And I'll ask them, well, are you those things? And they'll like, no. And you kind of dig, and it's it's really obvious that they're talking about themselves. And that's why we kind of love celebrities. We kind of fall in love with them, I think. And a lot of times relationships fall apart when those projections fall away, because suddenly you look at your partner and you're like, holy shit, you're just a person. That can be a rude awakening for a lot of people. And you've really just got to lower your expectations. So I think lowering our expectations has been what I have taken away from being a therapist. You really need to just be best friends with your loved one. Yeah, it's a little boring sometimes. Seymour said, there's the pain of being alone and there's the pain of being with somebody. You know, Take your pick. And the pain of being alone is, you know, kind of obvious, you're lonely. And the pain of being with somebody is that, you know, you've got to work things out. You've got to talk things through. You're going to fight a lot. You're going to argue a lot. You know, things aren't always going to go your way. You're going to you're gonna have to compromise where you live, how you spend your free time. It's not fun. But the payoff is that you don't, you don't have to be alone. I mean, who's going to take care of you when you're old? And I know that sounds so cliche, but it's kind of true. What are you going to do when you're 85 and you've got nobody around you? That's dark, but there it is. The last thing I want to touch on is compatibility issues. So in marriage, I've noticed that you can either do this dark shadow dance with your partner, or you can use your differences to kind of get along. So a real simple example would be like, one, let's say one partner is introverted, the other is extroverted. Let's say the extrovert wants to go out and dance and have fun and do all these things. And introvert's like, no, I want to stay inside and that sucks. And they fight about it. Or the introvert could go, you know what? I know that I need to get out more and I'm going to utilize my partner's outward energy. I'm going to harness it to help me get out of my comfort zone, help me get out into the world because I need that. And simultaneously, the extrovert can look at their introverted partner and say, you know what? This person is saying, hey, let's stay in. Let's do something quiet. That can also be very valuable. And I think introverts also have a natural predilection for looking inward and that can be very valuable. So you can harness each other's differences instead of fighting about them. Another simple example could be like you have differences in spending habits. One person is, you know, likes to go out and, you know, spend a ton of money and party, and their one is super conservative and pinches pennies. Now you can see how that could start a fight, and you could also see how that could save everybody's ass. If you're spending too much money and the penny pincher's like, hey, you know, let's chill out and let's budget, that can really save the marriage. On the other hand, sometimes people are so tight with their money. They've forgotten how to have fun. So again, you can do the dark dance of getting into a big fight, or you can do the dance of light, I guess. Um, That's kind of the dance of light. Yeah, right. Anyway, (laughs) so those are some of my thoughts on that. Dennis asks, what stops people from starting therapy? 
Honestly, I think money and time. A lot of therapists, they love to say, oh, it's never about the money or you would make the time. And I, and I think that's kind of bullshit. Honestly, for one thing, time is money. And for another, I think if that were true, millions of people who couldn't afford therapy otherwise, they would just go. You would see a lot more interest in it. There's tons of research showing that, that vast populations are underserved for mental health. I, I really don't think it's about motivation. I think it's really time and money. And on that note, a little public service announcement, I call on all therapists to have 10 to 15% of your practice, either pro bono or on a deep sliding scale. And I mean like 70 to 80% below your rate. And uh, if we all did that, it would really help the world. Uh, Dennis asks, does being diagnosed with clinical depression mean that you will be like that forever? No. <laughs> I watch people change all the time. Sometimes it's as simple as getting on the right medications. People do grow. They do change. Therapy does help. I've seen it over and over and over again. He asks, why does dream work help you with your mental health? Well, because dreams help you uncover shit that you might be avoiding or were unaware of. And I have several podcasts on that. Just scroll back through the little menu and you will see. I mean, dreams are invaluable. If somebody can come in who has little to no insight into themselves and suddenly they'll talk about this dream that they had last night of some you know, deep experience with their mother or father and suddenly we're having this really, really deep conversation. The cool thing about dreams is that even if nobody knows what the dream means, there's something about if you just start talking about dreams, all of a sudden you start talking about more salient, interesting issues. I don't know how that happens, but it does. Dennis asks, how does one explore one's subconscious safely with the goal to heal? Well, <laughs> by seeing a therapist like myself, of course. No, another question would be, when is exploring the subconscious unsafe? can be unsafe if somebody has really severe PTSD and they can get triggered during session or triggered outside of session from the material that you covered because you were covering something too quickly, because you dive too deep, too fast. Uh, they can have panic attacks. They can, uh, they can have weird blackouts, like uh, global amnesia where they just lose a day and stuff like that. You have to be careful with PTSD and other deep childhood wounds. Also, sometimes if somebody is, has a history of psychosis, you've got to be, you know, or schizophrenia, you've got to be really careful what you bring up in session. And just basic instability, like if somebody is struggling with bulimia and deep depression and deep anxiety, you've got to move slowly sometimes in therapy. You can't just jump right into the deep end. It can make their conditions way worse. Sometimes people just need to come into therapy, sit down, talk, be heard, be seen, and just move very slowly. And I also want to add, <laughs> it's also unsafe when people are using things like psilocybin and MDMA and DMT and ketamine kind of wantonly and just without any supervision to explore their subconscious. I just don't think that's safe. If you do that, you know, make sure you're doing it legally, you know, whatever state or precinct or city that you live in that, that that's allowed and that you're doing it with a professional. And it's, I can't even ethically recommend it. I'm just saying that if that's the road that you're going to go down, it's dangerous, folks. Using that stuff is dangerous. Because the thing about these drugs is that from what I've heard from folks is that there's doors in your mind that you might benefit from opening up and there's doors that need to stay closed you may open up something that wasn't ready to be opened up yet. You know, what if you had some severe childhood trauma that you blocked out for a good reason and all of a sudden you open that door up during a drug trip and you start having uncontrollable panic attacks? That can be really unsafe. It's, it's popular these days, um, the whole drug thing. And so I just want to caution folks to please be careful with that because it's going to gain in popularity because it's powerful. And um, I just hope more and more professionals start to handle that and get the word out. Two more questions how does spiritualism relate to mental health? I don't think it's any, I think it's, they're the same thing. Jung talked about how mental health is about connecting the conscious to the unconscious mind or the self. And in a lot of different cultures, 
there's this dichotomy between the ego and the deeper self that you'll see. Like in Hinduism, the true self is known as the Atman, which is the eternal, unchanging essence of a person's being. And the ego is this sense of identity that arises from attachment to one's body, mind, and emotions. The goal in Hinduism is to realize that the, the true self and overcome the ego through meditation, self-inquiry, and other spiritual practices. I don't necessarily agree that disabusing oneself of one's ego is a good idea. I think that it's a if that's the direction you want to go in and you want to lose your identity and just step into the great eternal, that's cool. Buddhism teaches us that the ego or sense of self is a delusion um, that arises from attachment and clinging to impermanent things, that the true self or Buddha nature is said to be the innate potential for enlightenment that exists in all beings. Anyway, so it's kind of the same idea. Christianity. So in Christianity, the true self is often equated with the soul, uh, which is seen as the spiritual essence of a person that is created in the image of God. The ego or the sinful nature is seen as a distortion of the true self that arises from the fall of humanity. I, I think it is interesting that the term ego is associated with so much negativity and that it, it's interesting that the term ego has been kind of reduced to like pridefulness, but it's really not. It's about identity. It's about who you identify in the kind of your conscious world. Anyway, and the last one is Sufism. So Sufism, this is new to me. The true self is known as the heart or the spirit, which is seen as the divine essence within a person. The ego or the nafs, what an interesting word, is the lower self that is driven by desires and attachments. Uh, the goal of Sufi practice is to purify the heart and overcome the ego. Again, it's the same idea. I think what Jung is adding to all of these things is that it's the connection, the canuctio, as I think he would say, between the ego and the unconscious, that the mixing of those two things that is the goal. So I've said this before. So when you have an ego wound, when you have a narcissistic wound, like you, let's say you were always left off the you know football team when you were a kid or your parents belittled you or whatever it was, and you can spend the rest of your life with a self-confidence issue. So somebody who has is disconnected from their deeper self, which is where all that healing comes from, will externalize that wound and seek healing by putting other people down or whatever whatever it is, you know, with drugs or with violence or whatever whatever ego wound that they've sustained. If they can't go inward, they will find it outside of themselves. And that is the cause of all the problems in the world, in my opinion. So I think these religions were definitely on the right track. I think it's a little incomplete on their end, but hey, as you can tell, I'm a huge Jung fan. <laughs> so last question, what are archetypes and how can they help you with mental health? Jesus Christ, what's an archetype? Well, listen to my episodes with Dr. Amy Lawson. There are ways back on dreams and archetypes, but archetypes are universal images like pyramids, Aphrodite, Zeus, God is an archetype. You know, Mother Mary is an archetype. You know, the Aztec cultures snapped up the Mother Mary image because I, I believe it somehow looked or felt like one of their myths. So how do dreams, how do these archetypes help? It helps me as a clinician. If, if an archetype pops up in somebody's dream, like if there's an archetype of this, of the ocean, you know, I know, I know the ocean is usually symbolic of the subconscious. And so I, I can know, oh, this, this person is dreaming about this. And I can kind of, it's almost like a map. I could, it helps me give a dream map. Now it's not set in stone, of course, because every dream is unique. But for instance, like when I was a kid, I had a dream that I brought to my therapist at the time of this, uh, it was this dry, flat rock for miles and miles and miles. It was completely flat. And above it was this shining star that was growing and lighting everything up. There was not a shadow anywhere. And I asked him about that. And he said, well, that there's something within you that's spiritually doing something good. And um, I didn't say that very poetically, but whatever. And there's also, if you think about the shining star, there's the shining star of Bethlehem. Now, I'm not saying I'm Jesus. <laughs> what I'm saying is that the idea that shining stars 
are they're indicative or they're emblematic of i think spiritual light of, of a spiritual reminiscence like you know when jesus was born there was a mythologically speaking there was a star it was like indicating that there was this new consciousness that was entering mankind and in my dream it was like a new consciousness that was entering me um i mean even i don't know if this applies but even like pink floyd with their you know shine on you crazy diamond i think there's something about that song and i'm i'm, I'm sure i'm messing up the lyrics but there's something spiritual about that song that's like just shine very brightly as a person it's really about the soul and about you get my what i'm saying so yeah archetypes help man <laughs> i could say more about that but i'm not gonna anyway look so this has been a short episode and i just wanted to kick everything off with this question and answer thing that i'm doing thank you for listening uh, there's they're going to be short and they're going to be more frequent i'm going to start putting little things up on instagram saying hey come ask me a question and we're going to answer it and once again the link to my patreon will be in the program notes and you can email me your questions at benjaminrusick at gmail.com that's b-e-n-j-a-m-i-n-r-u-s-s-a-c-k at gmail.com anyway thank you for listening and tune in next time